Father, thank you that we can pray for Neil. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will anoint him as he speaks. Thank you for his servant heart, Lord, and his willingness to come and bring your word to us tonight. I pray that as he shares, there will just be so much, so much fruit and food coming to nourish us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Gideon. Good evening, everybody. It seems that God's really just through the worship speaking to just our hearts tonight. I um, was reminded of a, uh, something a, a teacher that I heard teaching once said. His name was Bob Mumford, and uh, he was quite humorous, and so often people would be laughing or smiling, and he said, don't worry, I'm just making you laugh so that your lips are out the way when I smash you in the teeth. Now, I'm not going to smash you in the teeth tonight at all, but I think when through gentle times of worship, God um, softens our hearts. And it's often in times of song and in worship. You know when you say and you sing and you go, like, anything, Jesus, anything. And then I think Jesus sits and he goes, okay, got it. And then about three weeks later or a couple of weeks later, you'll go, remember when you said anything? Okay. And so I think God wants to speak to our hearts tonight, and I want to tell a story about, well, it's mainly about two men, but a third guy gets involved anyway. These guys lived in the first century, uh, in the 80s, and the first guy we want to talk about is a guy called Onesimus, and uh, he lived as a slave in the first century. In fact, he was a runaway slave. Uh, from what we can understand, he was probably quite young, maybe a young teenager, but in those times you were regarded then as a man. Slavery in the first century world wasn't uh, particularly pleasant. Um, some scholars estimated up to a stage about a third of those living in the Roman Empire lived as slaves. The important thing to remember around slavery, well, there's a couple, but as I'm talking, I'll highlight a few, is just remember slaves weren't viewed as people. They were viewed as economic commodities, right? You were property, and I know that those of you who work, sometimes you feel like that. You're just viewed as an economic commodity. At least you get a salary at the end of the month. The slaves had nothing. Now, some slaves were treated well, some were treated badly. It just really depended. But because it was such a big part of society, uh, it was quite normal. And often slaves had good relations with their masters. But it seems that Onesimus wasn't happy with this situation in his life because he ran away. Uh, as we read a bit later in the scriptures, we'll see that he probably stole some things to finance his trip because slaves don't have savings accounts. And so if you want to finance your runaway or your getaway, you've got to generate the income somehow. And so from what we can surmise, he stole some things. But while he'd run away, God worked things in his life and his heart that he became a believer. He came to know Jesus Christ probably under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Somehow they connected. And Paul actually writes that he became his son, meaning his spiritual son, through their interactions. Not certain if Onesimus was caught by the government and being forcibly returned, but whether that was the case or because he'd come to Christ and realized that he had to go and make right some of the things he'd done wrong, Onesimus is now returning to his master that he'd run away from. And this is a big deal because in Roman times, almost anything could happen to runaway slaves. You see, if you're an economic commodity and you haven't returned value, then you're a problem for your owner. You're a problem for your master. 
And so under Roman law, basically, and it was applied differently in different times, but basically, when a runaway slave was 100% at the mercy of their master. There's accounts written where the masters would just make an example of the runaway slave and they would kill them so that all the other slaves get the message. Sometimes they would brutalize them, they would be very cruel. Um, sometimes it would just be a whipping, but either way they would find some way to extract the revenge, to get recompense for the inconvenience that the runaway slave had called them. So the slave, Onesimus, is 100% at the mercy as he returns. Now he's come to know Christ. God has done something in his heart. Perhaps he's saying a song, something like, I surrender all. Might sound familiar. And Jesus said to him, really? I want you to, to go back to Colossae, because he's probably in Rome with Paul as far as we can tell. I want you to go back to Colossae and fix things there, restore, make right. And this brings us to the second man in our story. His name is Philemon. You can call him Philemon if you want to be a South African, it's fine. Um, but probably in the Greek it would be Philemon or something like that. So being English and wanting to sound like I'm educated, I'll say Philemon. Is that okay? So Philemon is actually Onesimus' master. Uh, he's a slave owner in the first century, as many people were. He's a, he's a man of some means. He has a, a household, a home that he owns. In fact, he's also a believer. He became a Christian in the two and a half years that Paul lived in Ephesus. Acts says, the book of Acts tells us that Paul lived in Ephesus about two and a half years. And from there, as he ministered, many of the other towns and church uh, cities in Asia Minor, including the city of Colossae, got influenced by the gospel. And they came to know Christ. And Philemon is one of the men who came to know Jesus because of Paul's ministry. In fact, we'll read now that there's actually a church that meets in his home. So at the minimum, he's a life group leader. But he probably runs either the church or one of the home groups and churches in the city of Colossae. And so he knows Christ. The church is about 30, 35 years old at this time. 35, maybe a bit less. And so... They've started to address, you know, what does it mean to live in the image of Christ and to be like Christ? But it hadn't really challenged that much of the socioeconomic norms. I mean, Paul did write in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Gentile when it comes to salvation. There's neither slave nor free. Your socioeconomic reality doesn't determine your relationship with Christ. But as Paul now enters the scene and Onesimus has come to him and he's either heard about Philemon or he knows him, he wants to initiate some change here. He sees an opportunity, perhaps on a personal level, just because Onesimus has become dear to him and important to him. He sees an opportunity for God to do something, maybe just for himself, but perhaps for the church that's at large. And so Paul becomes our change agent. And so for our purposes tonight, I wonder if you can pretend that you're Philemon. You don't have slaves, because that's just not cool. Okay, but... But you're Philemon, you're the person who's going to be challenged. Thanks, Gideon. Okay. What am I on Facebook now? Okay. Um, Philemon is the one who's challenged to change. And so one of the things we want to talk a bit about tonight is how do we initiate real change? How does change come, not only in our lives, but if we want to bring change for God? Maybe 
I think Kirinu spoke last week on the whisper of God. Maybe sometimes you'll come in your life where God will whisper and he'll ask you to either change yourself or to become a change agent. <clears throat> so how do we initiate real change? How do we become more like Jesus? How do we become better people? How do we become better spouses, better parents if that applies to you? And what about if God wants you to become a change agent in your extended family or on the varsity campus where you study or in your workplace? How do we start change that challenges what is normal? Slavery in the first century was a norm. It was simply just the way things were. It was the reality of life. No one thought it strange, actually, because for hundreds of years before them, that was the way things were. And in their minds, that's how things would stay going forward. So how do we change when things are regarded as just always having been done that way? Now, we get different kinds of change. Some change is fast, some change is slow. Some change is personal, some change is corporate, organizational. Um, change can be internal, it can be external. But before you get into all the complexities of change, and no matter what kind of change God challenges you to do, and what plans or processes or actions you need to take because of that change, before all of that, uh, the title of my message tonight comes in is that real change starts in the heart. Real change always starts in the heart. I think often in the kingdom of God, sometimes change is initiated externally, but real change often starts from the inside and it works out, definitely or mostly on a personal level. And so that's sometimes why God whispers to you and he starts initiating change in you. Often he'll start changing things in you so that you're ready for what he wants to do next through you. So when you Keep an eye on the time, sorry, because you all look super time conscious in the December holiday. So real change starts in the heart. So if you can, turn in your Bibles or on your devices to the book of Philemon. It's easiest to start at the back in Revelation and then just work your way to Philemon's just before Hebrews and just after 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. It's just a really short little letter that's there. We're going to read the whole book. So you're going to do a whole book of the Bible tonight, all 25 verses. Well, maybe we won't read the last two, because, but we'll see how it goes. So Philemon is more to the right than to the left. Okay? If you're in a device, it's at the bottom. Okay. We're there, we're good to go? Okay, so Paul writes, Philemon verse 1, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and I'm going to kind of comment as we go through the text, because I can't help myself, but I'll make some points as well. This is the only letter, by the way, where Paul introduces himself as a prisoner. Uh, other places he'll say he's a prisoner or he's in chains for the gospel, but he, even in those letters when he writes, he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's the only letter where he says, Paul, a prisoner. He's coming in at a completely different angle, and Timothy, our brother Timothy, is probably writing for him, to Philemon, one of the gentlemen we met earlier tonight. Philemon's name literally means the one who loves. Phileo is one of the Greek words for love. Philemon is the brother who loves. I'm not sure if that was the name he was born with or it's a name he took on when he got saved or came to conversion, but he's the brother who loves. Philemon's regarded as a dear friend and a fellow worker. Also to Aphia and our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier. They're probably senior members of Philemon's household, maybe his wife and his oldest son. And to the church that meets in your home. So Although this letter is very personal, Paul's writing it to one individual, 
It's not completely private. There's other members of the household that get involved. And most likely, this letter would have kind of been read in the church as well. Because, I mean, it came from the Apostle Paul. So it's quite something. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes. Next paragraph starts in verse 4. He says, I want to thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. If you want somebody to change, remember them in your prayers. Uh, who's married here? Okay, about six of us. Okay, no, it's a few more. Um, for the rest of you, just take notes. Okay. Your spouse will tend to become who you pray them to be, not who you nag them to be. Just for free. Men are famous for nagging, apparently. Okay. So, sorry. Always, that was just free marriage advice. Always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. So Paul has been praying for Philemon because he wants Philemon to change. He's going to challenge him to change. He's going to provoke change in his life. So Paul remembers him in his prayers. Text goes on and says, Because I hear about your love for his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul knows about Philemon's testimony. He's heard some things about him, about his reputation, his love for the God's holy people, his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, he says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of everything good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Some things we grow and we understand better in God when we start expressing and living out our faith. Verse 7, your love, what you're known for, your testimony, your reputation, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. You have refreshed the hearts of the saints, some translations say. So Philemon has a testimony and a reputation. He's known for his faith in Jesus. He's known for his love for the saints, and he's known for refreshing the hearts. I wonder if you know people like that, that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. When you've been with them, you just feel better. They refresh your heart, whether it's they do something small practically for you, or maybe they give you encouraging words, or they're there when you really need them. They are people who refresh our hearts. Now, Philemon, as he led his church, he had that reputation. He had that testimony. That is what he was known for. In other words, he was really a guy who lived up to his name. He was the brother who loved. And so in this, Paul sees an opportunity, perhaps. He sees that here is an ideal candidate for change that I want to initiate beyond maybe just this one instance with Onesimus. So what's your reputation? What is your testimony? What has God done in your life and through your life that he can use as a platform to initiate change, either greater change in your life or as a platform to initiate change outside of yourself in different spaces. Each of you, I know maybe you say, you know, I don't have a cool testimony. I was, you know, never a drug addict and never killed seven people and, you know, whatever. Um, maybe your testimony is pretty like normal. You're kind of a good person, realized you weren't all that good, gave your life to Jesus and he's been challenging you and changing you since then. But you have a testimony, something that God is busy doing in you and through you that God can use as a platform for change. And so we go back to the text. In verse 8, Paul starts and he says, Therefore, so because of who Philemon is, because of his reputation, he's decided to handle this situation with Onesimus in a certain way. So he writes and he says, Although in Christ 
I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Now, Paul's not being presumptuous. He's not throwing his weight around. He was an apostle. And in the first century church, the apostles had real authority. Remember, the Bible's busy being written. So today, if we want to know what's the right thing to do, what is authority, we come to the scriptures and we read them and we study them and we, they have authority in our lives. They tell us what we must believe. They tell us how we must live. But in the first century world, that role, that function was carried by the apostles, those who knew the teachings of Jesus deeply, who knew the teachings of Jesus well, and mostly had met Jesus in person, like Paul did on the Damascus Road as well. So Paul has the authority. He could really have said to Philemon, I want you to do this, because it's the right thing to do. And that's the cool thing. When Paul said that, it would have become the right thing to do. How's that for, like, authority? Okay? We can dream. So in Christ... Paul has the spiritual authority to tell Philemon what to do. But he says, I'm not going to do that. He says, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. What's Philemon known for? For love. On the basis of who you are, I want to ask a favor. I want to appeal to you. This is none other than Paul. I'm an old man now. Paul's probably in his 60s by this time. So he's not physically strong enough uh, to force Philemon to do what he wants. I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's probably under arrest, house arrest in Rome at this time. So his legal standing is not all that great. He doesn't have grounds to coerce or to force Philemon. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave name. It means useful. Imagine, you know, calling your children useful. Well, you know, it could be like prophetic because, you know, then they could help you at home and do kinds of things. But, but Onesimus' name meant useful. It's not a glamorous name. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So while Paul's in prison in Rome, somehow his life and Onesimus' life intersect. And he becomes a spiritual son to Paul. Paul starts discipling him. And then Paul cleverly writes in his formerly, Onesimus, he was useless to you. In other words, he didn't live up to his name. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. There's opportunity here because he's met Christ for him to live up to his name, to be useful. Verse 12, Paul says, I'm sending him who is my very heart. That's how precious and important Onesimus and how useful Onesimus has become to Paul. I remind you that Philemon is known for refreshing the hearts. And so Paul's very clever. He writes, he says, refresh my heart. This man, Onesimus, has become my heart. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I was in chains for the gospel. This was common practice in the first century when Christians were arrested. The other Christians in the city or the town would help them. They would take care of their needs because Roman prisons were not great places. And you were largely responsible for your own care. It wasn't like the government provided you with a wedge of bread and a glass of milk a day or something. Uh, people had to take care of you. Were you really at the mercy of others in that situation? And so it was very common practice in the first century, particularly from this time onwards, when Christians got arrested, other believers in the city and the town would help them. So Paul's not being presumptuous here. He's just referring to common practice. I would like that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do 
will not seem forced, but it will be voluntary. And so on the basis of who Philemon is, on the basis of Philemon's testimony and reputation, Paul makes an appeal for Onesimus. Paul has apostolic authority, but he lays it down. He appeals instead of commanding. He had the right to command it, to instruct, but he decides to make an appeal, and he appeals on the basis of Philemon's reputation. Why does Paul do this? I mean, obviously, what happens to Onesimus is very important to Paul. He's his very heart. There's a lot at stake here, because remember, Onesimus is 100% at the mercy of Philemon. Now, we don't really know what Philemon did with his runaway slaves, but common practice would have been to exact some form of punishment at a minimum. And so it's critically important to Paul. So he could have ensured the outcome quite easily by giving an instruction. But on the basis of who Philemon is, he decides not to do that. Why does he ask for a favor instead of commanding? I want to propose the following. A favor has to involve your heart. If I give you a command, you can obey it or disobey it. It doesn't have to, you can go through your head. It doesn't have to go through your heart necessarily, unless you're incredibly rebellious and God's got to deal with you just to follow simple instructions, obviously, okay? But we don't know people like that. But what Paul does here is he asks for a favor because a favor has to go through your heart. It's got to process through you. Something's got to change because real change always starts in the heart. And Paul wants some change to come in Philemon's life at this time. There's two more things about Paul's appeal. What is Paul asking for? Well, he's at a minimum asking that Philemon doesn't punish Onesimus. And also that he lets Onesimus come and help him. So basically that instead of, of being economic value uh, to uh, Philemon, that he releases him to come and help Paul. That's the request at this stage. I think he might be asking a little bit more, but we'll get there a little bit later in the text. text sorry. I want you to note that what Paul is asking, Paul is asking big. He's also asking outside of the norms of the day. This is not what you normally did with runaway slaves. They were your property. This is not how you treated them as a norm. We're not sure how the church had started engaging with this thing in this time, but it's really on. It would have been normal for Onesimus to be punished. Now, I wonder, as this letter gets read in the church in Colossae, what the other slave owners in the church, yes, there were probably other slave owners in the church, I wonder what they would have thought. I wonder if any of them perhaps came and had, you know, one of those quiet little words with Philemon. You know, Philemon, you really got to think about what you're doing here because, you know, what you do, we, you know, that sets an example now. It's the church that meets in your home. You're a leader in the church. And that's probably exactly what Paul is after. He wants Philemon to set an example that challenges others to change as well. But before that can happen, he's challenging Philemon to change. And we'll talk about the challenge in a moment. But what appeals for change is God making in your life? As I've walked with God, I've come to notice that more often than not, God invites change in my, from me. In my life, God invites change. He seldom commands it. I think sometimes God will do it. And, you know, you will stop doing that and you'll do this maybe. But it, and it's usually probably not that quiet whisper. Then it's more the, 
the stick on their head from the loving Father, obviously. Okay. But God more often invites change. What change is God inviting you, inviting in your life? What change is God provoking in your life? I know it's the end of the year, but sometimes with, as it gets a little bit quieter, we have time just to reflect a little bit and to think on our hearts. So what appeals for change have been made in your life? Verse 15 in Philemon reads, and it says, Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. So Paul here appeals to the providence of God. Perhaps God had a plan in all of this. I know Onesimus ran away. Wasn't that great? He's been useless to you. But perhaps, Romans 8, God was working good in this situation. Because that's what God does. Sometimes our lives go in these twists and turns, and then God starts working good. Now comes the challenge. Perhaps he was separated from you for a little while that you might have him back forever. Now Paul starts the challenge for change. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you. Now I'm not quite sure Philemon was there yet. I'm not sure he would have thought that Onesimus was all that dear. He's a useless runaway slave at this stage, up until Philemon gets this letter. And then Paul goes big. He says, he's even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. This would have challenged Philemon's paradigm, because up until this point, Philemon most likely only saw Onesimus for his economic value. He saw him as property, not person. In a real way, that's difficult for us to imagine because I would assume none of us have grown up owning slaves. But he's, he doesn't see Philemon as, a real, as equal to him as a human being. And Paul comes here and he says, he's a human being, he's equal to you. Not only that, he's a brother in Christ. Just adds the value. And so Paul challenges Philemon's view of Onesimus. He challenges it deeply. He goes right to the core. But I want you to notice that he doesn't challenge him based on his preferences. He challenges him based on biblical value. All people are made in the image of God. That's the biblical value that's being applied here. You have to see him as a person, not property. And Paul takes us and he challenges Philemon and he applies this to him life. So what do we regard as normal it's just the way things are in our context, in our families, in our lives that don't align with Scripture. How many times have we said, well, it's just the way I am, as if that's fine. What change is God provoking in our lives? But Paul doesn't let up there. He carries on in verse 17. He says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him, your runaway useless slave, as you would welcome me. Not quite sure that's what Philemon had in mind. How do you think Philemon would have welcomed the Apostle Paul, the one who's responsible for his salvation? I mean, this is Paul. I'm not sure if they had red carpets in the first century, but it probably would have been like an honored guest kind of scenario. And so Paul doesn't just say, he's not asking here. Remember I said he's asking big. He's saying, welcome him as you would welcome an apostle of God. He's really challenging Philemon to change. 
And then Paul writes, and it's a, it's a soft suggestion in the language. It says, if he has done you any wrong. You know, like when we say, I'm so sorry if I hurt you. When we, like, we know we really have hurt somebody. It's more like that, okay? He knows Onesimus has done him wrong. If he has done you any wrong, because I know he has, or owes you anything, because I know he stole stuff from you, because that's how slaves finance their trips, as I mentioned earlier, charge it to me. Now, that's nice words. But then Paul does something interesting. He probably takes the pen from Timothy's hand, or the quill or whatever they were writing with, and then he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And what does he write? He says, I will pay it back. What's he done here? What he's done under Roman law is he's given Philemon legal tender. That should Philemon go, no, no, this is just way too much. Onesimus is, you know, it was my favorite mug that he stole or, or whatever. I want payback. Paul's writing, he says, you can take this letter to court and you can tell the judge, in his own writing, Paul wrote, I will pay it back. So Paul becomes now legally responsible for Onesimus' debt. That's quite something. Paul takes responsibility. It's beyond just words. Over each of our lives, God wrote, for our sin, I will pay it back. And so Paul's, all he's doing here is he's really just being like Jesus for somebody in somebody else's life. I will pay it back. Not to mention, you owe me your very self. He's, he's putting some pressure on you. In the culture of the time, it's the, there was a value on uh, reciprocity. So if someone had shown you benefit, you had a cultural obligation to pay it back. So it's much more normal. It's not a kickback. Okay. It's much more normal in that time. That's how the society worked. That if someone had shown you any form of benefit, you would show them back with kindness or honor or respect or repay them in kind. And Philemon's salvation was on Paul's account. Okay, so not to mention you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In other words, just do what you're known for doing. Your reputation stands, and because of who you are, I've appealed. Just be who you are. Confident of your obedience, Paul writes, I know that you will do even more than I ask. So I think Paul's actually hoping that he sets Onesimus free. So Paul assumes responsibility. He's not just challenging for change and using nice words. He's buying in. He's got flesh in the game. So Paul puts his money where his mouth is. He assumes responsibility. He literally is prepared to put his money where his mouth is. I've mentioned that he wrote and he said, I will pay it back. And why is Paul confident? Why can he do this? It's because of Philemon's reputation, because of he's known for who he is. And so if we're going to be agents of change and if we're going to challenge people to change, and perhaps if God challenges us to change, we have to assume responsibility, like Paul did, for what we can. We can't force people's hearts to change in that sense, but we can be responsible for what we should be and can be. So let's finish the letter so that we can say that we've read a whole book of the Bible in church tonight. 
Paul writes and he carries on and he says, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me. Paul's in Rome. Colossae is like thousands of kilometers the other way. Paul wanted to go to Spain on a mission trip. Everyone kind of knew that. But he's just going, I'll put all my plans on hold and I'll come visit you if we need to, to sort this out. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. That was normal. The Christians prayed for each other to be released. And then he just sends some greetings. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. Epaphras, we know from the letter of Colossians, was actually one of uh, Philemon's mentors. He was Philemon's pastor probably in years past. He sends you greetings. <laughs> so is Paul putting pressure? Yeah, your pastor knows about this. <laughs> okay. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demon, and Luke, my fellow workers. So my whole ministry team knows about this too. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so Paul comes based on who Philemon is, based on what God does in and through our lives. He challenges us and he provokes change. He invites change. Seldom commands change in our lives. He appeals for change in us and through us. He challenges the status quo in our lives, but sometimes in our context, in our situations, he challenges the status quo. And he expects us to assume responsibility for change. But he always starts in our hearts because real change always starts in the heart. So do we know what happened? Not really, but there's this interesting little anecdote in church history. If Philemon was quite young, early teens perhaps, which is highly possible for this time, and if he managed to grow quite old, which may be possible, we know that in the year 110, so about 60 years on, which would put Onesimus around the 70-somethings, okay? So it's possible that one of the church fathers, he writes a letter for us, and he says that he travels to the city of Ephesus, and he meets the bishop of Ephesus, the overseer of all the churches in Ephesus. Guess what his name was? Bishop, um, bishop of Ephesus' name was Onesimus. Now, we don't know if it's the same man. Church history doesn't tell us enough. The one fact is that within 60 years of Paul writing this letter, there is a man with a slave's name who's a leader in the church. He's the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Church history tells us that at that time, the bishop of Ephesus, Onesimus' responsibility was to collect all the authentic writings of Paul that were circulating in the province of Asia Minor. So wouldn't you, I like to think of it this way, wouldn't you have kept the letter that bought your freedom? And so it's, it's a stretch, but it's possible that the, it actually happened, that Onesimus' heart changed. He responded to what God had provoked and Paul had provoked in him, and that Onesimus, the slave, became Onesimus, the bishop. Because you see, when God changes things, anything, when God challenges us to change, anything becomes possible. So it's an anecdote, difficult to prove, but it's interesting that there was a bishop in Ephesus whose name was Onesimus. It's not the same guy. The effect of the letter is as profound because within 60 years, there's someone with a slave's name who is a bishop 
in the church. And so what's God speaking to you about change? Or what may he be speaking to you about change? When he does, remember it in your prayers. Pray about it. Notice what God and others are challenging in your life. What change is being provoked? Challenge the status quo in your life based on biblical principles and values, not on preference and comfort. When we study the scriptures and we find that they say what they say, let it challenge us to change and then assume responsibility for change. But real change cannot be done in human self-effort. Real change starts in the heart when the Spirit of God comes and empowers us to change. Because if God challenges you to change, He'll give you the power to change and the ability to follow it through. And if it starts in your heart and you have wise counsel and you apply your mind, you can put processes and plans and systems in place, whether it's individually or corporately, to bring that change into reality. You can do that. That all follows. But that doesn't help if the real change hasn't started in your heart. So we allow God to work in our hearts. It's a bit of a different context, but David, King David writes about change in Psalm 51. He writes a song. He's just messed up badly. He's sinned terribly with Bathsheba. And so he realizes that he needs to change. And then he writes what become quite a famous verse of Scripture, Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or renew a right spirit within me. And so tonight I'm not really talking about the sins you've done and how God needs to cleanse your heart. But what I do want to pray for us is that when God challenges us to change, that we find within ourselves a pure heart, that we find within ourselves a right heart, a steadfast heart that wants to pursue the things that God has for us. It's a quaint saying and it's perhaps overused, but God loves you just the way you are. And you know the rest, eh? but he loves you too much to leave you like that. Can I invite you to stand and then we're going to pray? Father, I don't know where everyone finds themselves this December and where each heart is. But Lord, I know that you gave me this word. And so I trust that as you speak to people about change, as you whisper, and as that whisper is real, that in our hearts those words find fertile ground, that we can respond to the change that you are initiating in us and perhaps through us to situations and families and workplaces and campuses around us. Thank you that you come by your spirit and you create in us a willing heart, a clean heart that wants to pursue you, that wants to follow you, that heart that says, like we're saying tonight, that we surrender all for you. Which means, Lord, when you call us to change, we want to follow and we want to respond. Not only for ourselves, but for our community, for the city around us. Lord, you, we speak here at Hatfield about being a community on a mission. A community that wants to make disciples. And Lord, that's a community that's involved in life change and in city change and in family change and in community change. So come by your spirit, Lord, and give us hearts that are ready to change and then give us wisdom and wise counsel to know how to implement and to execute whatever kind of change it is because, Lord, I believe it will be different for each one.
So Lord, I bless each one tonight. I bless their coming in and their going out. I bless their time with family. If they're going to be doing that over the holidays, I bless their rest. I bless their work. Thank you for the tender sense of your presence with us tonight in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you, everybody. We, uh, that's the service for tonight. Go with God as you go into the week. Bless you. Amen.